You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book so you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to Not Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Because we enjoy digging through a haystack made of needles looking for the one piece of straw. My name is Kevin and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, the cat's meow, but not the kitten's purr. Benedict, what's a band that you think would have the most normal backyard barbecue? Oh. Just like, there's, there's no drug use going on, there's no half-naked people doing okay. weird stuff back there. That is... Just you go back and there's a dude with long hair standing by a grill... Another band member walks up, go, "Hey, working hard or hardly working? How's it going?" <laughs> um, I don't think this is the right answer or true, but in my head, I'm going with Kiss because <laughs> I think it would be really funny. Because you've funny. seen Gene Simmons in his, yeah. in his without his makeup on. No, but I just really think it would is. be really funny if it was just all completely normal oh. and then they just had all the makeup <laughs> on still, but they were just acting as if it was completely normal. So that is hey, not the right answer. Flip, hey, I think it's time to flip that chicken. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get too much, too much uh, char on one side, you know? That, yeah. that is, it's not the right answer, but it's the answer that I wish was true. <laughs> it's the answer that I'm trying to manifest into the world. The, the correct answer is some Christian brand, band that I've never heard no, of. No, those don't count. Those are not real bands. That's a great question. Except okay, for uh, Live, the band Live, which was actually a pretty decent band uh, in the yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. I, think probably, I Alone is a jam. I Alone is a jam. My actual, like, I reckon One Republic are probably pretty normal. <laughs> behind the scenes uh, that, okay that's not what i meant by band though that's a boy band that's different it's not a boy band they all play uh, instruments uh, do they really yeah, yeah they uh, do are you sure you yeah sure? i don't they believe do. they play, I don't believe they it. play so many instruments i do not believe it I don't they play they way do. yeah they do i've seen them live they have the speak and spell of instruments is what I, they have they play cello live <laughs> like i've seen them <laughs> play a bunch of, yeah, on secret. what song does, does one direction have a fucking not one cello direction, one republic sorry Dickens. whatever is that the australians i thought were british no, i don't uh, know no that's one direction uh it's all the same shit one republic okay is one republic australian no I don't know who is Australian. Nobody's Australian. Who is a, somebody is Australian. Damn it. <laughs> That's okay. The the fact that you didn't know the difference between One Direction and One Republic is, Benedict, is truly... there is no difference. There is no difference between okay. One Direction and One Republic. There I'm going to no tell difference. our listeners to yell at you again. <laughs> Um, no, I think One Direction would be a fucking insane. Oh, next party. you're going to tell me about the difference between In Sync and the Backstreet Boys. They're so different. They're so different. 
Mm, okay um this is not worth the argument i'm gonna back <laughs> away from this you like what you're clearly wrong and you're doing you're uh, doing that thing where one's backed into a corner and then you just start saying yes ben, like, i lash out i yeah, lash out exactly. hard clearly exactly <laughs> all right so um i guess i guess i have to ask you who your weird band that you think well is normal is i mean now. mine's now, the Mine's the correct answer. It's just the Foo Fighters. Oh, yeah. No, that is the yeah. right answer. Because you know Dave Grohl is just standing by the grill flipping some chicken. Oh, you, you mean Nirvana? <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Hmm. Anyways, Benedict, <laughs> you probably know. Dave Grohl seems cool. I would like to meet Dave Grohl. Oh, yeah, Dave Grohl is like the, the best of all of us poured into one person. He's just a he's a, a legit dude. Just legit. That's that's what you can say about Dave Grohl. Uh, but Benedict, you probably know. Uh, some people might not. What exactly it is that we do here on this program. And to them, I would say that this is the show where we go deep. Deep, deep, deep to plumb the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from a work of conservative nonfiction, and in between, taking a look at other examples of the right doing their best to make America hate again. I just realized in my version of the show notes that I have, I used the wrong form of there, and I am mad at myself for that. I used T-H-E-R-E, when I know that it is T-H-E-I-R, I will perform seppuku with a beach ball after I the program am, is over. I am- I'm going to start going into the show notes and just <laughs> no, making shit grammatically don't wrong. Don't you dare. It's still phonetically correct, but just don't start making Don't you dare. <laughs> well, Benedict, do you have a hot take for us this week? I, I did, and now I have another one, which is that I can't believe <laughs> that you would say that there is no difference between One Direction and One Republic. What an absolute monster of a I human. I couldn't name a single one of the songs from either one, but they okay. both have one in the name of the band. That's close enough for me. Okay. All right. Well, that's that. I'm mad about that, and I will never uh-huh. recover. Uh-huh. But having said that, I was also mad about something else today, which is that Lewis Hamilton was robbed of his Formula One racing title. Oh, and I've been, I've been mad about Formula One oh. two weeks in a row. So I thought, you know, I've got two half hot takes. One of them is I can't believe what an idiot you are. And then Uh. the second one is that I can't believe that the FIA would rob Lewis Hamilton of his title. I can't even explain it, but those who know, know. If you know, you know. I saw that on Twitter and went, uh, I don't care. Scroll no, past. I'm amazed by like how into Formula One American Twitter has got. <laughs> it's, it's truly incredible. Well, it's probably that thing. Well, you know, since coronavirus, we all had to stay inside wow. and find new things to find entertainment in. So maybe yeah. there's been some branching out. There was um, there was also a big Netflix documentary about Formula One, I think, um, which is a- actually why people care. Well, um, that would explain so. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's like, oh, wow, this is way better than any racing we've watched ever. <laughs> um, anyway, what's your hot take? Uh, my hot take, Benedict, I think I could live in my office. In my actual office at the law okay. firm. I could, I could live. There's enough room okay. in there. Okay, okay. There so is. Size, but I'm just imagining you, like, I'm imagining this is a challenge where, like, you're having uh-huh. to, like, evade yes. the janitor. Yes. And, like,. <laughs> <laughs> like I think I could do it. not like the size of the office, but like yeah, I mean my office is bigger than my apartment. I'm pretty sure. No, just me doing that uh, Mission Impossible hanging from the roof. Yeah, thing with your the own theme music, yeah. like do 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 do, <laughs> but just humming it to yourself. No, I'm just saying that I I think that uh, it's strange that my office is larger than places I have lived mm-hmm. uh, in the past. I think you you probably recall my bedroom uh, in Berkeley at that house I was living in. My uh, office is larger. Yeah. 
my office is larger than that. Yeah, but you had a common space. Like, I mean, I'm sure you could, true. Like... True. Wait, we have a common space yeah, at the that's office true. too. That's true. That's we true. have a coffee area. There's some snacks over there. I can, I, you know, we have a mini fridge. It's full of sodas. Mm. I could make it. I could make it last in that okay. office. I'm just saying, could. I could save a lot more in rent and pay off my student loans faster. Oh, yeah. so. All I'm getting at. Big time. Yeah, I mean, we could all do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyways, Ben, let's move on a little bit. What is on your bookshelf this week? What should people be well, reading I've instead actually, of the crap? I've actually been doing a cull of my bookshelves this week. Oh, um, really? So, yeah. Does that so mean you're you're pulling off some of the, the books I have sent you in the past that you've never bothered to read? No, I am throwing away all the right-wing ones that I inexplicably <laughs> kept, though. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I'm getting rid of about 20 books, all told. Um, oh, man, to that's a sad and... moment. That's a know, sad moment. I know. It feels wrong to it throw does, away a book. But I also have about, I think, probably like... Donate them somewhere yeah, or no, no, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not throwing them away. Okay, not, good, apart good. From the Apart from the right-wing ones, which I will be burning. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I probably have like 150. No, that, less than that. But still... In, in a New York apartment, I have too many books, yeah. especially especially yeah. given that I'm moving soon. Especially so. how much space is taken up by that heat pipe of yours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, there's nowhere, <laughs> nowhere for the books to go. I start using them as insulation for the heat pipe. <laughs> um, no, so uh, uh, anyway, all that to say, I'm going to recommend a TV show, which is uh, La Casa de Papel on Netflix. Uh, the new season just dropped, Money Heist. Oh. It's the final season. It's fun. It's a bit silly, but it's very fun. In English, translates to chicken with lemon and pepper. It doesn't, but yeah. that's fine. I'm pretty sure it does. Pretty it doesn't. Sure. It, 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 it Benedict, I to... have two semesters of Spanish under my belt. Translates to paper house, um, <laughs> which is the the translation of money heist is way way worse. They should just call it <laughs> like why, ah, what is this about? Oh well, it's a it's a money heist. You see, oh, the perfect name. Okay, cool. <laughs> Um, anyway, go watch Money Heist. It's great uh, and it's fun. And watch it in Spanish because the English, uh, the dubs are terrible. Sure. If you are able to watch it with subtitles, if there's nothing impeding you from watching with subtitles, then please watch it with subtitles because everyone is much cooler with subtitles. No. No, not going to do it. Just they, not going to do it. They, I don't, they might. I, don't I, know, do well, I don't do subtitles. I know you don't, but you should. I'm not going to ask because now you, you've undermined my you've undermined my bookshelf because well the... on my bookshelf this oh, week well. Benedict oh fine I didn't ask I don't Kevin need you. who cares I don't need you uh, I'm recommending this week I actually have a book this week oh wow um, seems true like whenever you reversal. don't I in order to spite you recommend a book <laughs> literally. <laughs> Uh, good, great book I picked up recently. You know, like I always say, uh, I do this show because I am actually very interested in this subject matter. Uh, so I'm reading about it a lot. Uh, one of the books I picked up recently is called Messengers of the Right by Nicole mm. Hemmer. Um, and it takes a look, I think, at a time period that's before a lot of what we've ever talked about on this show. Um, going back into the 1940s, 1950s, and looking at the rise of the original conservative media, um, and some of the, the pe- you know, the radio really was, was where a lot of that was back in the day and some newspapers and stuff. So, but before things like, uh, you know, William F. Buckley and even the John Birch Society, there were people and groups out there trying to spread this right wing message, uh, this hardcore anti-communism and all this kind of stuff. It's a very interesting book and it's opened my eyes to a couple of interesting concepts mm. that I think are going to come up on the show in the future, especially that the way that the, uh, message and the the uh, ideas of the right wing are developed in a different manner than mm. anyone else 
That's interesting. Which I find interesting. And uh, just because you mentioned that, I think another really interesting period is um, the early 90s as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly people like, um, you know, Pat Buchanan, the Pat Buchanan era and the like San yeah. Francis, the rise of San Francis. And given that I didn't recommend a book, I'll recommend an essay um by i think john gans wrote it in the baffler uh i may have recommended this before but it's, it's called the year the clock broke um and it's about the 1992 election and uh david duke and pat buchanan and sam francis in it sam francis influence on conservative messaging and then you know into the later rise of newt gingrich and all that kind of stuff it's mm-hmm. a it's a super interesting forebear of right now really um and is really like a it's a it's an interesting insight into um what the right wing does when it's out of power to try and reinvent itself um and kind of the confluence between paleo and neocon and where there are uneasy alliances there and stuff like that it's just it's all really good stuff so you know i'll uh, i'll recommend an essay instead of a book at this time fine and i don't i actually don't remember i feel like we haven't done an episode on pat buchanan but we haven't we have come up in yeah. several of our yeah, episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we should. We should actually. We're, wait, we're going to do a Pat yeah, Buchanan yeah, yeah. episode. He was. He's on my list because we're going into this whole libertarian right yep. thing right now. So he's on my list as someone that we're going. We should to be do an episode on San Francis future. as well. Sure, I'll put him on the list. It's okay. all on the list. Anyways, Benedict, why don't we move on to housekeeping this week? Remember first to rate and review us on the iTunes, and uh, if you do, send me a screenshot of it, and you can get added to well. You know what it is. We'll say it in a minute. Uh, follow us on the social medias. And, of course, I want to just let everybody know, because of the holidays, we're recording some get-ahead episodes because Benedict and I are both going to be traveling uh, around Christmas and New Year's. So for the next two weeks, we're just going to have episodes that are recorded ahead of time. I just want to mention, just in case, you know, um, New York explodes and you mm-hmm. wonder why uh, we didn't talk about it or something, you know, because we're recording some get-ahead episodes. So if we seem uh, to not know what's going on in the world at the time, uh, that would be <laughs> More <fine>. than usual. <laughs> yes, more than usual. I also have, Benedict, a couple of updates this week. Okay. Uh, starting off with last week, I could not remember the name of these of Zach Galifianakis. Okay, and in then reference you to the character of he not played. remembering the thing that you were saying on the show. And <laughs> when I, I texted it to you yeah. randomly because I, 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 I had a shower thought and remembered his name and yeah. texted it to you. You, after you I got literally out. were like, Zach Galifianakis. And I was like, is that yep. what? Is yeah, because you of didn't game? remember right away. Well, that, well, I didn't know. I didn't know what you were talking about. So I was like, "Is he dead? Like, what happened?" Is he, like, <laughs> I, I am. My first thought to go was to go check Twitter and be like, "What happened?" I would just randomly text you if Zach Galifianakis had died. For or some that reason. was major. Just I text you his name. Maybe he did something like dumb. I don't. Right? You know, whatever. I, I thought. I thought he was either dead or Maybe had been outed. He did outed. a podcast with Jordan Peterson. Yeah, something like that. And like, oh. Like, what did he do? And then, you know, it wasn't that. So nope, I, I, nope. I got it eventually. I just like, people don't text each other Zach Galifianakis <laughs> out of the blue and expect other Benedict, people to understand they what they mean. They don't text other people Zach Galifianakis out of the blue enough. That's no, what I will say. Fair enough. Uh, but I could not remember his name in reference to the character he played in the 2010 film Due Date. Uh, I also, I have to say, incorrectly said that that movie was about him trying to get Bradley Cooper to his wife when actually... The co-star of that film was Robert Downey Jr. I apologize extensively. You should apologize profusely for that my many crazy. errors that I made. You uh, conflated, that conflated the Hangover and <laughs> Due Date. There, they're the same fucking movie. Get over it. 
Um, second update, uh, praxology. This is something that has come up in reference to these, uh, paleo-libertarians we've been talking about a lot, uh, and the, uh, pseudo-economists we've talked about for the last couple weeks. Uh, it is the belief that economic decisions are all made rationally, which the Mesians believe is, you know, central to their arguments, because otherwise, uh, you know, it just doesn't make sense anything they're saying, even more than it already doesn't make sense. But I, I had another shower thought, and... It actually right. is something I did reference the other day, which is is that this entire argument is rebutted by the existence of the bagel slicer and a TikTok I saw recently, mm. which was a guy watching a video of a girl who had just bought a bagel slicer, and he pulls a bread knife out of a drawer and says, I just saved you $35, because we don't make decisions rationally. Fucking advertising destroys all of our decision-making processes, mm. which is what I it's just designed like to, say- to do. That bread knives also cost money, though. Yeah, but you know what? That Ikea bread knife I'm sure he was using there cost about 54 cents. Maybe. Compared to the $35 bread slicer this chick, the bagel slicer this chick had bought. Okay. So, yeah, just just wanted to get that out there. Also, Benedict, last update for this week. Um, and this, you might also notice I'm drawing out the beginning of this week's episode because we have fucking nothing to talk oh, about yeah. this week, and I yeah, don't yeah. know how we're going to make a full episode out you, of this nonsense. You always say that, and then we're here we are an hour and a half later going, well, because that was I, it, we ran over again. Because I managed to find a way to draw things out along the way, but Benedict, we have a little video here at the beginning Ugh. of the episode. Short, it's only about okay. a minute, minute and ten seconds. Minute I'm going to make you seconds. skip through so much of this chapter if you make me do this. Benedict, this is something that came up on the Tucker Carlson broadcast oh, last week, December 8th, 2021. It's a little ad. A little ad that Tucker played on his program, and it, it ties together, again, a bunch of our cast of characters all coming back together in this. So I thought, you know, we talked about Tucker a little last week. Let's, let's give him a little bit of time on our program to okay. see how this goes. And it's not great. Dr. Van Joan is the director of diversity, inclusion, and equity, die, at the so-called Alphabet Mafia. He's out with a new sales pitch describing everything diversity experts can offer this country. Here's his pitch. We're a for-profit coalition of organizations funded by George Soros. So... (laughs) Right. Okay. It's a parody. It's a parody, Benedict. Um... They got parody, uh, and I should note that this parody video comes from The Blaze, Glenn mm. Beck's network, and on the, the very first thing you see on this little parody ad here, they have a photo of George Soros with the yellow text underneath him on the screen, We're New World Order. The what? We, the We're New World Order. That's what it okay. says. We oh. are, W-E apostrophe R-E, New World Order, exclamation point. And uh, that little slap sound effect you sound was when the logo for D-I-E, Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity, came up next to his face, which also says, We Kill America, underneath it. Did, does Tucker Carlson Very think- subtle. It's very subtle, Benedict. I- it's as if Ben Garrison directed a parody <laughs> ad. It's, it's so subtle. Tucker Carlson doesn't think this is real, though. Um, no, but he presented it as it was at the beginning. Because, Benedict, the right is getting good at comedy and the left is scared. That's true. (laughs) Also, they did get a guy who does manage to sort of imitate Van Jones' voice. Eh, Not terribly. Not terribly. It's not the worst I've ever heard. It's better than I could do. Mm -hmm. We're Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, and critical race theory. So when he says that, there's a picture of... uh, uh, 
Oh, God, why did I blank on her name again after you just <laughs> said it? <laughs> Stacey Abrams. There's a picture of Stacey Abrams on the screen with the yellow letters, Professor Crump approved. Great. I don't know exactly what, I'm sure there's someone they've demonized with that. I'm I don't sure. know. It's, yeah, it's bad. All rolled into one. We burn and loot cities. We redefine marriage. And we're also in the process of... And they've got a woman there petting a cat with the yellow letters. Marry your cat underneath okay. it. Because they have one right. joke. They have one yep. joke. Yep, yep, yep. Well done. Redefining and expanding gender identities. Do you have a violent criminal history? Maybe you've done time in prison for pedophilia. Great. Cool. Maybe even some domestic violence. And you can't find the right job in corporate America? No problem. At DIE, you're a perfect candidate to loot, burn, and terrorize black communities. You right. could be the next Joseph Rodenbaum. So that's an obvious reference to uh, one of the people that Kyle Rittenhouse killed. Um, yeah, this is this is right. so such great subtle satire they're doing here, Benedict, isn't it? Isn't it yeah. really just the best? Don't worry, that's we're not, almost done. That's that's bad. We're almost yeah. done. So don't miss your chance to kill America. Call us right now. Sounds like Steve Harvey. He's gone into Steve Harvey mode. Wait, 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 wait. You, you've, you, you missed the dismount. You missed okay. the dismount there, Benedict. The dismount is something. The dismount is something. Let's do it. Do it again. Just to be clear, that's a parody. It's getting very hard to tell at this point. He was actually laughing. He actually laughed as he said, it's getting very hard to tell at this point. Oof. It's not. Oof. Oh Oof. my God, that it's was so a, bad. A, it's a big woof for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the underlying, what, what? I mean, if you just look at what they were saying, and it's hard to say that actually is like a joke because we know that Glenn Beck does believe that Thinks Soros that. pays people to go out in the streets and burn stuff and riot and blah, blah. He actually believes that. And then mm -hmm. they made this Blaze parody, which is just saying that. Yep. I don't know. I don't know how the right got so good at comedy, Benedict. It's That's not all good, I can Kevin. say. It's not That's good. all I can say. Well, Benedict, why don't we move on? Um, before we get to this week's book review, I do staffed one inductee. One inductee into our spooky New World Order eh, this week. Uh, as you probably noticed over the last several weeks, we've had some audio issues on the show, mainly with uh, my side, uh, some stuff going on there. Uh, one of our, our listeners reached out to me and gave me some tips on how they think that we can solve this problem, and I implemented them, I think. Uh, we're going to see how it goes in the future. I'm also probably just going to upgrade my whole setup here in the next couple months or something because, you know, I'm finally making that money as a lawyer, so I can afford to do that now and hopefully have a, a little easier go of things. But uh, this person wanted me to refer to them as DJ McNasty. So, DJ mm. McNasty, you are now inducted into our... New World Spooky World Order. Thank you very much, DJ McNasty. And with that out of the way, Benedict, we continue our book review of God and Man at Yale, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom by William Frank Buckley Jr., a Budweiser bottle with a cigarette butt stuck in it. Benedict! What did we read this week? Well, Kevin, this week we read chapter three, which is entitled Yale and Her Alumni. In which Buckley... <laughs> no, pause. Just, just says, pause. 
In which what, Benedict? Nothing fucking matters in this yeah. chapter. Yeah, that's true. He's just, he just, I, I mean, I feel like every intro I do is like, Buckley is whining about shit that doesn't matter again. Yeah, let me like, sum up this chapter for you, Benedict. Oh, the alumni don't care about what's going on at, at yep. Yale. Ah, oh, and Yale doesn't really bother to tell them about my complaints that I make about Yale. And yep. they wanted me to do a speech, but then when the administration heard that my speech was just complaining about the administration and screaming that everything is socialism, they said, ah, maybe we don't want you to do that speech. The end of chapter. That's what we got. That's it. That's what we got. All right. See you next time, everyone. (laughs) We're under an hour for once. Uh, Well, Benedict, do you have an alternate chapter title for us? I do, and it is My Naivete in Print. Mm, Very nice, very nice. I have Harry Potter and the... Harry Potter and the curse of everyone hating him because he just yells about socialism. The mm, best I could yep, do for you this good. week. Also, also good. Yep. Okay. All right. Best I got I you. Do. And okay. Buckley starts off this chapter telling us, quote, If the alumni wish secular and collectivist influences to prevail... Please don't do that. I, will, yeah, I, will, walk away, I will walk away if you keep doing that accent. <laughs> I promise I will take my headphones off and just go. Stop it. What is more, <clears throat> if that is what they want, they need bestir themselves very little. The task has been done for them. There remains only a mopping-up operation to eliminate the few outspoken and influential figures who stand in the way of real unity in Yale's intellectual drive toward agnosticism and collectivism. Implying he is one of those few that needs mopping up, of course. I mean, he's not wrong. He's, he's not yeah. wrong that they need to just get rid of him. That would be wonderful. But yeah, of course, we know what he's been complaining about this whole time is just a whole load boring. of utter horseshit. It's very boring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're pat- he's not, at this point, as far as I can tell, throughout the remainder of this book, going to have any more complaints about Gale, right? We've already been through his two main ones, that they're not religious enough, they're not forcing Christianity, by which he means his version of Christianity on everyone. Um, mm-hmm. They allow atheists to exist, or his definition of atheist, whatever that particularly means in 1950. We know it had a different meaning to the public in yep. general at the time, and certainly a different meaning to Buckley at the time. And then mm-hmm. um, they teach the most modern uh, form of economics that was uh, prevailing at the time, and which yeah, generally has economics. prevailed since then. So those are his big complaints, and from now mm-hmm. on, like I said, we're just going to learn about why nobody listens to him. That's that's mm-hmm. his complaint. Nobody listens to me. That's this whole chapter. Yep. And he starts off here, as I said, telling us about how the alumni, they just... Uh, they don't either they're not listening or they're not being told or mm. they just don't bother to learn or most horrifyingly of all possibly they agree with what's happening at Yale who yeah. can imagine such a thing which like, like that? Wh- okay so I, I have a question here so mm. I mean what, what we get into is that basically the thesis of this chapter is that some of the members of Yale's governing body are elected by the alumni mm-hmm. like a few a few of them yes a handful um he makes the case that all of them are to some degree but that's not really true it seems to me that only six of the 17 are truly elected by their alumni peers yep um wow you paid far more attention to the bullshit two or three pages about the process (laughs) for electing various individuals than i bothered to to, yeah well it's just like who i mean it's absolutely who cares is the answer yeah but so essentially like when was the last time you as a an american alumnus because mm-hmm. as an oxford yes. alumnus i have never ever ever thought about that ever <laughs> like since like i have never thought back about oh i wonder how they're governing my school i should have a right to help them uh-huh. decide so is that normal in america was it normal uh, look, like uh, maybe maybe for these ivy league wasp dicks but not for anyone that i know 
Right. Yeah, I went to I feel... UC Berkeley, which is a you know notoriously left wing school. Um, but I, I like I said, I think a couple episodes ago, unless they like hired Jordan Peterson, I wouldn't give a shit what they're doing because in general, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Like I and might, also, if I might differ with the decision of the the head of the university over where to build a new stout housing complex because they want to get mm-hmm. rid of People's Park, which I am opposed to. But you know, like uh, they, I, some professor gets tenure, some other professor doesn't. I don't give a shit, and I shouldn't yeah. give a shit. No, and also ultimately, like this is an academic decision. So mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is to me, this is very similar to like the their parents and school board stuff oh, that is going God. on right now. Yes. But don't you think though, that like people going, I know better than this professional educator about what is best for the group. Oh, that's, a, like, that's absolutely it, what this is. And yeah, that, that yeah, ties yeah, yeah. back to, we keep asking, how is this book a classic? We see these small connections to all these mm-hmm. things we see in modern day. I, I think really it's just that, you know, for, for example, we talked about how I think we found this list on, was it Turning Point USA's website? Did they have this book on there? I think it was the American Enterprise Institute, actually. Or Young, was it Young? Oh, YAF. It was on YAF, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's one of those books that screams about academic freedom. This book should not be a classic of theirs if mm-hmm. they actually cared about academic freedom. Because as we're going to see in the next chapter, he has an entire chapter about how academic freedom is in fact not preferable not what anyone wants um but you know like i said it goes back it's one of those little things that tells us oh we can see how this could be the foundation for them thinking it's a classic but honestly Mm -hmm. i don't think any of them have ever read this book is just the truth of it it's quite possibly not um the only other thing i was gonna say is and also i mean what he does is because presumably the alumni that are graduating with him will have a very different opinion Mm -hmm. so like even if he wins this battle, he is losing the war long Yeah, time. and he points that out, right? He does say in this chapter that, well, if they don't do anything about it now, it's very likely that in the years to come, then there will never be anything done about these non-problems because people will have graduated with these professors and learned Keynesian economics, yeah. and they'll just not care. But that's the thing. like, it's, Unless you then shut the future alumni out from the decision-making process, which maybe he wants to do. Maybe. But... But that essentially, like, in 10 years, you've lost this battle anyway. So it doesn't matter. None of this matters. The history of conservatism is fighting losing battles. They're not they're not unaccustomed to that. Right. That's true. That's true. Okay, let's get into it. So uh, this these first couple pages are, are, like we said, very boring. There there's a lot about how various people are elected to different boards and yada, yada, yada. There's just a few things in there I did find somewhat interesting. And one is this quote. Which is, quote, If Yale alumni come to be dissatisfied with the international, national, and community influence of the forthcoming generation of Yale graduates, they can only do so with the irrationality of the Scotsman who complained that his new dictaphone had the worst Aberdeen accent he had ever heard. Look. Absolutely what? We talk a bunch of shit about Buckley, but I fucking loved that sentence. I fucking loved that sentence. I'm sure he st- I, I don't know. Maybe that was a joke at the time. Or came from some sort of popular culture Maybe. thing, but that's a good little joke. It's a good little joke. I don't mind it's, it. It's it's fine. It's okay. It's an okay joke. I yeah. would say. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. I it's, think just it's, kind like, of funny. it's just accusing people of lacking self-reflection, which is fine. It's just you know. Sure, I get it. You don't want to make fun of the Scots and the fact that they talk funny. I get it. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but he continues on after that, saying, "Quote something well, we sort the, of referenced." The, go go ahead. Sorry. He says, "Quote." And so I repeat, 
Unless something is done now or soon by collective or individual alumni action, nothing Excuse in all me, what? Collective action? Uh, collective action? Socialist. Nothing in all probability will be done in the future about Yale's predominant biases because there will be in full accord with the wishes of the next generation of alumni. And it's just yeah. him almost realizing that time goes on without him. And, and people's views change, yeah. Yeah, it's very much just that thing. And then we sort of get the thesis for the chapter below that, which is, quote, they have the power and they have the right to interfere. But I go one step further than some people, for I maintain they also have the duty to interfere. Yeah, well, I d and, and this is all based on the, the little bit at the end of the page here that runs on to the next page. Mm -hmm. His, his thesis here is based on an official pamphlet, pamphlet of alumni organizations. Yes. Which, which, which says, and I quote the, the pamphlet here, the alumni of Yale, although widely scattered, maintain close ties with the university or have a place and a responsibility in shaping the future of Yale, which is a platitude. Yes! That oh, is God. a platitude. Benedict, I so literally have written in my notes on the side of my page, argument from platitude in a fundraising pamphlet. Exactly. You and That's I, exactly so simpatico here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is a platitude to try and raise money. That's all that is. Yes. Which, oh. I mean, you know, whatever. It's a very pedantic pedantic thing to hang your thesis on, I think. Well, and, and Buckley sort of recognizes throughout this chatter, chapter that the reality is that all alumni relations are based on fundraising. Finance. It's yeah. all about fundraising for every university. It's all about the money, baby. Yes, it's every university, everything I receive from the Cal Alumni Association is always about fundraising. Even when they're like, you know, little programs. Ah, you can sign on to become a member of this thing. It's because they're getting a kickback for getting, even though we may get a discounted price on whatever this thing is they're sending out, right? Like, I get, uh, there was like a Cal alumni credit card I keep getting, th you know, things about with, you know, XX bonus and three times points. I don't know, all that kind of shit. I haven't done it. Uh, but it's always because, you know, the alumni association and the college get a kickback when people get into that credit card. Yeah. So that's why they do it. It's all about fundraising mm -hmm. every time. And that carries on to the next page. Even in the 50s. Even, Even in, in the fifties, of course, in the fifties, when well, he's uh, just quickly, I want to, I want to say, like the the um, the way they there's a governing body of seventeen basically, and six of those are you allowed are to be. You are too obsessed with this structure. Bro. No, no, I'm just saying, <laughs> six of them are allowed to be elected. This is how I feel every time you're like, let's look at the full <laughs> career of the fucking professor. So you have to deal with it for a second. The, six of the seventeen are elected. Um, one of them is the governor of Connecticut for like some reason uh -huh. and and 10 of them are direct descendants of the original trustees <laughs> as far as i can tell but they still have to be confirmed by people but i think it's like very much a you know a done deal but he implies that it's not a done Benedict, deal. i'm just gonna say that's why we need to bring the guillotine back Okay. <laughs> for the trustees of Yale University. <laughs> yeah, for the for the ten ones that are from yes, the original. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um anyway, carry on. I got you. I got you. So um he starts off next, he's gonna be complaining about the way this voting process works. And so there's an alumni magazine at Yale called uh, rather uh uninspiringly, Yale Alumni Magazine. <laughs> Yam. <laughs> you know, I didn't even think of it being yam. That's great. It's great. I would like a copy of yam. Uh, but in that magazine, apparently what they do, whenever there's a space open and the alumni are going to be voting on someone, they put a, sm a short profile of that mm -hmm. individual into the alumni magazine. 
Uh, and they they elect what there's one this it's a six-year term and there's one person elected every six years of the six that are in yeah. rotation so just it's, it, every year there's a new election for one because the the 10 from the original trustees serve lifetime terms yes and so the one he has chosen to highlight is a guy named robert tenbrook stevens uh alumni of the class of 21 yes that would be 1921 dutch name very dutch name very dutch name uh but basically the the reason he puts this profile in here is to illustrate the fact that it talks about him and his experience and uh his life the fact that he was in the field artillery in world war one and all the places he has worked the various companies he is a board member of and he's on like he's a director of general electric and general foods and the new york telephone company and blah 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 all these giant companies this guy is involved with he's obviously incredibly wealthy we can all assume right um and then a little bit about his family does he have his mother's name i'm interested in that i don't know why john son of john peters and edna tenbrook stevens Hmm. you know what yeah i think so that's interesting i did not think that would have happened in 1921 yeah maybe it was a divorce or something or or maybe uh, no they would not no that's why a child of divorce into yale university in in 1921 (laughs) how could they it was probably if i had to guess like maybe the mother's family was more aristocratic and uh, prominent than the the father's family and so maybe something like that going on i don't know i couldn't imagine but after putting out this entire two-page long profile he just prints it in full in the as book. he as he has work to do as he has want to do um he complains that well well it talks a lot about his uh, achievements and accomplishments and the companies involved with it doesn't talk anything about his politics and what he thinks about education policy and whether or not we should be teaching keynesian economics mm-hmm. that's his complaint but it's like, oh, he's clearly like a business professional uh, and a understands guy who, markets. Yes, yeah. a guy who, again, I will remind you, the entire reason this guy is even being put on this alumni board is because he's filthy fucking rich and yep. knows a bunch of other filthy fucking rich people and will be able to raise a lot of money for Yale. That's yeah. why he's getting this job. If I cared more, I would have looked up who was on the board at Yale at the time Buckley was there, because I oh, can guarantee you, you <laughs> it was not socialists. I can guarantee no, you. Absolutely not. Every one of them a fucking blue blood uh, East Coast elitist of yep. the type that Republicans pre- pretend they are actually against. Uh, but he says, compl- in his section complaining about what's going on there, he says, quote, But what else can the alumnus who take some interest in education at Yale weigh in considering Mr. Stevens' qualifications? What does Mr. Stevens know about what goes on at Yale? How much time is he willing to devote to the study of Yale's problems? How does he feel about the wisdom of the private universities accepting government money? Does he believe communists on the faculty ought to be fired? Does he believe socialists or atheists should be allowed to teach at Yale? Does he believe Yale ought to take a stand on the great value questions that face American society? Which generally boils down to, is he fascist enough for William F. Buckley? Is the question Mm -hmm. he really wants answered. And if I had to guess, I'd say the answer is probably no. Because no. Buckley is, the, again, the only person who cares about any of this shit. Absolutely any of it. And he, again, like he has done in basically all these chapters up to this point, he's basically illustrated that that's the reality. That he's the only one who gives a single fuck about any of this because he's the wackadoo John Birchian weirdo. Mm-hmm. And as much as, uh, he wasn't part of... 
he was he was basically John Birch before John Birch existed, right? Or the mm-hmm. John Birch Society. Because remember, this is 1951. The one John Birch Society, as we learned, founded in 1958. He is saying the same things that we would hear from mm-hmm. the mouths of the John Birch Society founders. Uh, yeah. He just realized later on. It, yeah. He just realized later on in his career that he had to separate himself for um, image purposes from mm-hmm. the the John Birch Society people who were just too out in the open with their weirdness. Yep. And then he says a little bit below what I've already read, quote, It is my opinion that the administration of Yale does not encourage this sort of interest. In fact, I believe knowing that, because- that That is knowing, knowing what the candidates stand for. Right, right. right. I believe that because of her violent, all-consuming search for money, Yale finds herself in the twilight zone of hypocrisy with respect to her alumni. The would have been a good description of capitalism. The. Yeah, yeah, it would have. But also, it's one of these things that make it seem like there's a point of convergence between people on the left, like you and me, mm-hmm. and people like Buckley, where he's complaining about, ah, all this money they're at. It's one of those things that gets people like my tanky friend to become mm. a right-wing fascist because they see these points of convergence. They see that those people are complaining about the same people or mm-hmm. the same uh, organizations as they are, but they don't realize it's for an entirely different purpose. Whereas if you or I were to say, oh, the school needs to stop going after money all the time, it needs to be more about more than money, you know, uh, the objective we would want to see achieved by changing the way things work is entirely different than that Trick Buckley wants. Yeah. He wants them to, you know, just kick all the commies and atheists and socialists out and have a hard right fascist university. Yeah. Whereas, there, see, there's no point of convergence between that, even though we agree on this one point here. We yeah, don't actually come together. This is Yale competing in the market. So sure. by, by appointing the trustees it appoints, it is competing in the market for fundraising. So once again, you would think Buckley would love this. You, you, would, you would expect so, but we know he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he continues on. He points out that uh, the administration feels that it is better suited to deal with the educational policy without interference from alumni, which we sort of talked about already. And Which is correct. It's probably true. Yeah. yeah. You know, a bunch, of, a bunch of people who don't have anything, any involvement in education, but are just rich fundraisers um, probably don't know as much about education as the administration of Yale University. Skipping down a little bit, he says, quote, Several faculty members, while affirming the soundness of my analysis, hasten to add that on the other hand, they support Yale's public relations policy. After all, some said, in essence, the alumni don't really know anything about education, and their advice on this matter would probably be superficial. True. This, true. And again, this is another instance of Buckley revealing, yeah, nobody fucking agrees with him. Yeah. <laughs> Besides, if they are encouraged to be too active and their proposals become too concrete, it might lead to constraint and possibly to violations of academic freedom. I keep hearing your voice almost go. Your voice almost goes into the Buckley voice when you when you read extended <laughs> passages. You have to act. I hear it's you hard actively not to because fighting I, it back. Know, yeah. I watch videos of him from time to time when I'm doing research on this stuff and, and you know, preparing. And it is like, it's such a weird fucking accent, man. Yep. It's a mishmash of like seven things crammed together and it doesn't make any sense. It just sounds like pompous ass. That's yeah, all it it's is. A, it's a mid-Atlantic accent is what it is. Uh, he's just fucking Niedermeyer from, Ca- from uh, Animal House. That's all he is. He's fucking Niedermeyer. He's some wasp dick putting on airs to try and seem like something much more than he actually is. He's just a whiny asshole. Anyways, he continues, and now he's talking about Yale University. The fucking bylaws. He owns the fucking bylaws. Oh, God. He complains about the bylaws, and then he complains about 
um, the the Yale uh, who, the, the people who write the Yale alumni newsletter or whatever that yam the people who write yam, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the Yale University News Bureau, and he keeps saying, "Well, I know that they have a small budget, but they should still do more. They should do yeah. these things that that I want to happen in the Yale alumni magazine because." Even though I've acknowledged it's really all about fundraising, I want them to complain about socialism. Mm-hmm. It's really what he wants. He wants them to complain about socialism. And skipping to the next page, he says about that quote: "The Yale Alumni Magazine, Yam, which reaches." I wish he would use Yam as the. I acronym. know it, it really he wouldn't. Yeah, sadly, it really would. Which reaches almost all graduates is officially described as the chief connecting link between the alumni and the university. If this is the case, as it seems to be, it is no wonder that Yale alumni are egregiously misinformed. I am not aware of the issues that the Yale Corporation faced between 1946 and 1950, the years that he was attending Yale, Mm -hmm. but I am fairly confident, with the exception of those which involved money, no word about them reached the columns of the extraordinarily arid, persistently dull journal, the Yale Alumni Magazine. That's a pretty sick brand, to be honest. It is. It is. I do know that during that period, there were perhaps a half dozen major issues which split at least undergraduate Yale, and in some cases involved the faculty. There were questions of widely different nature, and for the most part, unquestionably of interest to the alumni, and yet they were never described in the magazine, nor are they described in this book, where he says that he knows about many of them. (laughs) And I have to imagine it's because... But it's a secret. He would have to betray the fact that it didn't actually split uh, the campus. It was just that he was on one side and everyone disagreed with him because nobody liked Willie. Nobody Mm -hmm. ever liked Willie. He's just an asshole. Mm -hmm. He then continues on the next page, again, still talking about Yale and its relation to the alumni. Quote, it is commonly pointed out that the average alumnus is more interested in athletic than an intellectual contest, and that, therefore, he should be given what he wants. After all, aren't football movies most in demand at Yale club functions around the country, or throughout the country? Don't Mm -hmm. most Bulldogs put Herman Hickman first on their list of preferred speakers? Just, just... I lost him here. Well, I I don't know who Herman Hickman is, but that's a great 1950s name. It is, It's a great 1950s name. But all he's saying is, you know, they care more about sports than uh, what textbooks are being used. And he's mad about that. And I I will argue strongly that alumni should care more about sports than what fucking textbooks are being assigned in classrooms. Because that doesn't fucking matter. What Mm -hmm. matters is, uh, for example, if you're like me this year, UC Berkeley destroying Stanford a few weeks ago and taking back the axe, which Mm. is what really matters. When we get down to the end of it, that's what really matters. And then he talks about some council that I don't give a shit about. I don't give a shit about this council. Did not give a shit. There's this council. um, It has alumni on it. It's supposed to be giving input on... Uh, apparently educational matters at the university, but apparently they're actually not. They're just, again, about fundraising because that's what they're all about. Yep. It's just about fundraising. And then we get to the point, probably the longest portion, the longest individual portion of this chapter, I will say, where he just complains about the fact that he was supposed to give a speech and then he wasn't able to give that speech. Yeah, because he volunteered not to give the speech. Yeah, because he made a big fuss out of his assholery. Yeah, he he self-censored and then was like, I've been silenced. Yes, and he tells us about this quote. again, sets the blueprint. (laughs) He tells us about this quote. 
To cite two examples which illuminate the role of the council in something more besides, I shall draw upon a personal experience. In December 1949, I was selected as the undergraduate speaker for the annual February Alumni Day. I, I wrote, sub- nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Crushed it. I submitted my address, which raised the question of laissez-faire education at Yale, to the University News Bureau 48 hours before it was to be delivered. I feel like you give them a week. I feel like you should have delivered and that. You a should. Week and also, like, this is an honorary thing, yes. right? Like, this is the thing, like, hey, you're a good student. Yes. And we remember, will he let was, you give a he, speech to the alumni. You aren't, you can't then go and be like, hey, fuck Yale. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think obviously. he was the chair of the newspaper at the time, 1949. I think that's the year he was the chair of the, uh, the student newspaper. Uh, so, of course, you know, probably they reach out to people in, in positions like that for doing stuff like this. Not surprising. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he... that's not what they're looking for, though. No, no, obviously not. And he continues, I shall not soon forget the comment of the director of the bureau as I handed the speech to him. Quote, what are you saying in it? Nothing, I hope. Just more proof that everyone fucking hated Buckley. Yeah. But still asked him to speak. Yes, but the, the head of the Yale News w- was... You know, basically said it to his face, dude, you suck. That's yeah. basically what that comment is. No, that's not untrue. But, uh, so, you know, he complained about this, uh, uh, or he didn't complain, but they, they reached out to him and said, uh, could you change it? Maybe not be a dick? Maybe don't be a dick and, and screech about laissez-faire capitalism in your speech for alumni day, mm. where... Nobody gives a shit, and they're just coming so that we can get more money out of them. Because, again, this is about fundraising. Mm-hmm. It's always about fundraising. Mm-hmm. And then he, he says, well, after some back and forth with the university, decided not to do it. He withdrew. Well, he says, I, I offered to withdraw, and then they didn't let me, and then they changed their minds. That's yeah. his big thing. Yeah. So they, there's like, oh, thank God you're withdrawing. Uh, we're, we're just going to, you're not going to give your speech, basically, is what it seems like came out of it. Um, and he, he has something that is so sad. I mean, all of this just reads like, oh, Buckley. Oh, Buckley, you're so sad. You're Buckley so baby, sad you no. weren't able to give your speech. Yeah. Because he says, quote, at the lunch itself, attended by some 1,200 alumni, my name was still listed on the program. But no explanation was offered when my turn came to speak. Well, also, I mean, the, the reason they say it, it was it was he, they decided to take him up on his offer not to speak yes. is because he was going to rave about communists at a World War Two dedication. Uh-huh. So yep. they were like, hey, maybe that's a bit sensitive <laughs> for maybe that this doesn't audience. belong here. <laughs> yeah. Maybe let's let's talk about it in private and then we can, which is exactly what they did. Yep, that's what they did. And, uh, yeah, they allowed him to come give his little speech to uh, the executive committee, I believe, mm-hmm. is who he actually gave the, the speech to. Um, and basically yeah. the rest of the chapter is just they didn't really care about my speech. Yeah. And that hurts my feelings that nobody basically. cared about my speech. Basically. And he said he, he asked them to interview someone of the opposing view, which – and then and he, he talks about Mr. Mr. Goodenough again, which oh, is Oh, God, I love Mr. Goodenough. I love Mr. Goodenough. Uh, because so apparently what happened after this is that, uh, you know, someone who learned about his speech, some, I believe it was a professor who was at the university, um, wrote him a letter, which was basically rebutting the bullshit he was saying. And I have to say, right, we have, because I don't know anything about most of these people he's talking about, most of them are long dead and, and, you know, nobody wrote about them other than Buckley in this time. Mm -hmm. I've just sort of presented what he said. I happen to think he's probably just full of shit. 
about mm-hmm. all these people and all the things he's saying about them. Uh, but yeah, this this professor who wrote back to him basically said that, uh, contrary to what Buckley has said, that there were almost a thousand students ascending uh, courses on the Bible and Christian religion at, at Yale, which Buckley mm-hmm. just said, that's false. There's less than 400 <laughs> of them. False. Um, and then... L- literally <laughs> Dwight Schrute, like... Yes. Point number two in that letter from the professor is Professor Goodenough has always been considered a good congregationalist, which Buckley rebuts in the the text of the book, saying, Mr. Goodenough, as we have seen, describes himself as 80% atheist and 20% agnostic. So Good enough for me. (laughs) Mr. Goodenough. Good old Professor Goodenough. And then we get to the end of it, right? And he has a little bit of complaining about uh, the fact that, again, they used Buckley for fundraising. I think that's that's fair trade. Complaining about the fact yeah. that uh, apparently Professor, President Seymour in 1949, the president of the university, uh, came to Buckley because they had a potential contributor to the university who wanted some sort of evidence that, quote, that the place wasn't swarming with new dealers. Sure. <laughs> Uh, to which uh, Buckley clipped out a half dozen or so of his editorials in the Daily News um, and sent them to President Seymour, who forwarded them um, to the uh, uh, Mr. X, the unknown guy. Mm-hmm. And he says about this quote, I did this willingly, but have since wondered to what extent my editorials, freakishly conservative, affected Mr. X's opinions about the political temperament of the Yale scene. I like that he's admitting the freakishness of his conservatism in that. Mm-hmm. I found that quite uh, quite nice. Um, yeah, it's quite telling, I think. So we're at the end of it, Benedict, and uh, I will read, as I always do, the final paragraph, which, once again, is just boring and dry and doesn't have much in it, but sure, here it is. It is, quote, At a plenipotentiary convocation Ooh. of alumni, Ooh, isn't that a Ooh. fancy word? Held yeah. in New Haven on the weekend of October 14th to 15th, 1949, and described by its chairman as a constitutional convention of alumni to determine and share the part that Yale alumni shall play in the future of Yale, Mr. Otis L. Hubbard of Chicago addressed the assembly, quote, We are invited to a convocation. Now, out in the Middle West, where culture isn't quite so prevalent, now I've... I've changed his accent halfway through we are not familiar with words like that i counseled with some of my erudite friends and they shook their heads and said that is an ivy covered word for a sales convention (laughs) end quote from mr otis l hubbard and buckley finishes this jocular description more accurately describes the summoned substance substance of the relationship of Yale and her alumni than Mr. Hubbard or the audience realized at that time. End of chapter three of God and Men at Yale, or as we have taken to calling it in our notes back and forth to each other, Gamay. Gamay. Uh, <laughs> Gamay will be over one day. God. We only have two chapters left, Benedict. That is the good news. We have two chapters left. This thing is six chapters in total, and we'll figure out the... Uh, appendices as we get mm-hmm. to them. I think we might have to do Appendix F, which is Buckley's undelivered address, which is reprinted in its entirety. I considered doing it today, but I think we'll save it for a treat at a later time. Oh, nice. Uh, the nice Wasn't little that a treat. nice tight episode there? It felt, Isn't it? Felt energy, energy was up. This was is my Benedict, this is my Christmas present to you. That we're under an hour for <laughs> once. Amazing. For a real episode, so you're not even an interstitial. I know! I wow. know! And now I have ten minutes of thoughts about... Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep talking just so it goes over an hour again and you can't claim that we did an episode under an hour. So well, yeah, I mean, there, me this, look, this chapter this week, there there was nothing in there. Not there, a lot to it, nothing. but an I 
ideal length, I think, for us to just have a bit of fun with it. But that's fine. Sure, sure. Um, you know, like I said, so we're going to have interstitials for the next two weeks uh, for episodes. They're not going to be uh, our normal episodes. We're not going to do a book chapter in two weeks. We're just going to have an interstitial there, uh, you know, because we're going to be traveling and all that sort of stuff. So we'll be picking up this book probably, I think, in the new year. We'll be picking up the book again. Probably. Um, and, you know, we're, we're close to finishing, so we're looking for the new book. So if you have suggestions you want to send to us about what we should be reading next, send them over to the Twitter at NYGBCPod. And thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, you can com forward slash NYGBC forward slash. I don't know why I yeah, have. Now that. Uh, there are certain things that we do on this show that I am always constantly completely incapable pronouncing every time yep. I try and do them. I just always, and that's one of them. That's one of them, as well as some other stuff in the intro. Uh, mm-hmm. For patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early releases of episodes, and more. And as always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Taru Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Balls Watterson and George Soros. Thank you all, as always, for being our patron. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, please pay close attention to all capes and lassos as you exit the elevator. Goodbye. Goodbye. Club Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.